Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with R.F. Kuang in Cambridge about her debut novel, The Poppy War, part of a trilogy. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical Fantasy Falcon series and the upcoming Girl of Fire. Before I welcome R.F. Kuang, who goes by Rebecca, onto the show, I'd like to share my review of her novel. Wren, an orphan raised by a family that treats her badly, is now Harry Potter, despite the superficial similarities. No kindly wizards await her. There are no summons from a cute feathered familiar. She studies day and night to be able to attend the military academy at the city of Sinigard, the capital of Nicara. She wins a coveted place at the academy through sheer endurance, but once she arrives, she realizes how far she still has to go. The rich and educated students are dismissive or downright cruel to Rin because she comes from a farming district in the south of Nicara and has darker skin. After several strenuous years at the academy, another student's taunts and bullying lead to a fight, during which Rin displays supernatural ability during combat. Until that moment, Rin displays no unusual traits other than exceptional endurance in the face of pain and disappointment. Only the eccentric lore teacher, Jiang, understands that she has the ability to call down a god to inhabit her body allowing her to fight with supernatural powers. He's hoping he convince her this path will only lead to madness and destruction. Rin initially listens to Jiang, but when she is assigned to the Chike, an assassination squad, after graduation, she falls under the sway of the commander, the charismatic and powerful Altan. Altan, like her, is a spearly, a member of an island race almost obliterated by the genocide of the Mugen, the enemy of the Nicara. When the Mugen invade Nicara again, Alton and a small band of outcast assassins try in vain to win a significant victory. After discovering the slaughter of the entire population of a town, and after trying to console a former classmate who survived multiple rapes, Ren is willing to try anything to save the rest of Nicara. But will the solution Alton proposes be the ultimate catastrophe? Yes, that's uh, one of the central conflicts of the Poppy War. So here's a little bit about Rebecca from her website, which is rfkuang.com. Her last name is spelled K-U-A-N-G. You can also find her on Twitter under Kwong RF. Rebecca says, writing-wise, I graduated from Odyssey Writing Workshop in 2016 and attended 
the CSSF Novel Writing Workshop in 2017. My debut novel, The Poppy War, is the first installment in a trilogy that grapples with drugs, shamanism, and China's bloody 20th century. I really love corgis, drinking nice wines I know nothing about, and rewatching The Office. I'm slowly growing out a pixie cut, so my hair looks different in every photo I'm in. When I'm not writing, I co-run the review blog, Journey to the Best, with Farah Nas Rishi. So now that you've been introduced, let's start the show with a short reading from Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I've got Rebecca Kwong on here today, and she's going to be answering questions about her first novel, The Poppy War, and will also be speaking quickly about her upcoming work at the very end. So to start things off, Rebecca's offered to do a reading from her book. Go ahead, Rebecca. Hi. I'm happy to be here. So I'll be reading from just the first two pages of The Poppy War. Take your clothes off. Then blinked. What? The proctor glanced up from his booklet. Cheating prevention protocol. He gestured across the room to a female proctor. Go with her if you must. Ren crossed her arms tightly across her chest and walked toward the second proctor. She was led behind a screen, padded thoroughly to make sure she hadn't packed test materials up any orifices, and then handed a formless blue sack. Put this on, said the proctor. Is this really necessary? Rin's teeth chattered as she stripped. The exam smock was too large for her. The sleeves draped over her hands so that she had to roll them up several times. Yes. The proctor motioned for her to sit down on a bench. The last two twelve students were caught with paper sewn into the linings of their shirts. We take precautions. Open your mouth. Rin obliged. The proctor prodded her tongue with a swing rod. No discoloration, that's good. Eyes wide open. Why would anyone drug themselves before a test? Rin asked as the proctor stretched her eyelids. The proctor didn't respond. Satisfied, she waved Rin down the hallway where other prospective students waited in a straggly line. Their hands were empty, faces uniformly tight with anxiety. They had brought no materials to the test. Pens could be hollowed out to contain scrolls with answers written on them. Hands out where we can see them, ordered the male proctor, walking to the front of the line. Please must remain rolled up past the elbow. From this point forward, you do not speak to one another. If you have to urinate, raise your hand. We have a bucket in the back of the room. What did I have to shit, a boy asked. The proctor gave him a long look. It's a 12-hour test, the boy said defensively. The proctor shrugged. Try to be quiet. Rin had been too nervous to eat anything that morning. Even the thought of food made her nauseated. Her bladder and intestines were full. Only her, uh, were empty. Only her mind was full crammed with an insane number of mathematical formulas and poems and treatises and historical dates to be spilled out on the test booklet. She was ready. The examination room fit a hundred students. The desks were arranged in neat rows of ten. On each desk sat a heavy exam booklet, an inkwell, and a writing brush. Most of the other provinces of Mekon had to section off entire town halls to accommodate the thousands of students who attempted the exam each year. But Tikani Township in Rooster Province was a village of farmers and peasants. Tikani's families needed hands to work the fields more than they did university-educated brats. Takani only ever used the one classroom. Rin filed into the room along with the other students and took her assigned seat. She wondered how the examinees looked from above. Neat squares of black hair, uniform blue smocks, and brown wooden tables. She imagined them multiplied across identical classrooms throughout the country right now, all watching the water clock with nervous anticipation. Rin's teeth chattered madly in a staccato that she thought everyone could surely hear, and it wasn't just from the cold. She clenched her jaw shut, but the shuddering just spread down her limbs to her hands and knees. The writing brush shook in her grasp, dribbling black droplets across the table. She tightened her grip and wrote her full name across the booklet's cover page. Fang Runin. She wasn't the only one who was nervous. 
Already there were sounds of rushing over the bucket in the back of the room. She squeezed her wrist, fingers closing over pale burn scars, and inhaled. Focus. In the corner, a water clock rang softly. Begin, said the examiner. A hundred test booklets were opened with a flapping noise, like a flock of sparrows taking off at once. And that's the first two pages of the poppy war. <laughs> yes. So, Rin gets her wish, and she gets accepted at the academy. Everyone's just heard about the grueling 12-hour test she has to endure. And then, do things get better? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they get much, much worse. <laughs> so, this is indeed a grim, dark novel. Here's my first question to Rebecca. Your profile identifies you as Grimdark's darkest daughter. That's the Twitter profile. Yet, you're young, attractive, allotted author. You graduated from Georgetown University, and now you have a scholarship in England. Why so drawn to the dark side? Yeah, so the, the Twitter moniker uh, came from a reviewer um, who was like, Grimdark's darkest daughter has arrived, and I liked it so much, I put it in my bio. Well, so first of all, I'm quite different from Rin, and I think my life is very different from the lives of the people I write about. So uh, I'm not personally drawn to the dark side. It's just um, the story that I'm telling. But So I, I study modern Chinese history. That's what I did my undergraduate thesis on, and that's what I'm studying now at Cambridge, uh, which means a lot of war, right? Modern Chinese history is defined by violence and trauma and war. And for me, it's not just an academic interest, it's also family history. It's studying modern Chinese history as a way to understand what my parents and grandparents went through, um, to understand the things that they choose to talk about and the things that they can't talk about. Um, so that's always been my academic interest, and um, all of my fiction is inspired by my research. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very bleak and dark novel just because my family's history and China's history is very bleak and dark. Yes, I can I can understand that. I have a master's in traditional Chinese medicine, so I'm a little bit familiar with the history of China, though it hasn't touched me personally. So uh, to move on to the next question, I'm quoting uh, from your grimdark novel here. To travel alone over the empire's vast roads was a good way to get robbed, murdered, or eaten, sometimes all three and sometimes not in that order. It's grisly and dark, but perhaps funny, too. That wasn't the only time I thought I saw a flash of dry humor here and there. Was that your intention? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely try to be funny um, throughout the book. That line, I think, is actually my was actually my editor's idea. I don't remember writing that. I think he put it in after, and I was like, okay, yeah, that's funny. Um, but I think that there are two traditions of humor that I mostly draw from, um, the first is just a sense of kind of nihilistic black humor that's very common in Chinese fiction from the era, mm. uh, and also in Chinese sky literature. Um, and I think you'll see this in Russian fiction too, which is just this sort of hopeless gallows humor. I mean, we have this in like Western literary traditions as well, but I think, uh, it, it is a trend that developed particularly around like post, um, I don't want to say post communist, but post atrocity. Uh, like, you know, so after opening up um, in both Russia and China, when people are finally allowed to write about it, the atrocities that happened, sometimes what you had to do in the face of such um, horrifying trauma, uh, the only thing you could do to survive and sort of keep your sanity was to make fun of what had happened. Um, so 
I draw from that tradition. Um, but also, like, I'm, I'm 22. And the line between Gen Z and millennial, I found out recently, um, which was startling to me because I had always thought I was millennial. And this generation is sort of defined by a kind of strange meme humor that, uh, like makes fun, like that takes horrific things and, um, like laughs in the face of them, not out of bravery or courage, but as just sort of a way to make sense of the world. Um, and there was a review I really liked, um, by Phoebe Barton that called The Poppy War a really millennial book. Um, and part of that. Um, and I really liked that. I hadn't realized that about myself, but yeah, like I, I was raised in an internet culture where we make fun of literally everything. Um, like this is a world in which gritty, that awful Philadelphia mascot has somehow become like a symbol of, um, the left. So yeah, that's the tradition I'm working from. Okay. And I didn't quite catch the different kind of books that you were referring to. It sounded like you said a word that started with N. Perhaps our listeners didn't catch it either. You said that um, When we're talking about scar literature, so scar literature is a genre um, of Chinese fiction uh, that arose in the 80s, I think, oh, um, okay. that involved people writing about the horrors of the Cultural Revolution. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, some of us may not be as informed about literature as it sounds like you are. That's interesting, and thanks for sharing that. So one way to view the poppy war is to observe that hate breeds more hate, creating a spiral of destruction that threatens to consume everyone. The Mugen practice genocide, viewing the Nikara as less than animals. Rin, our narrator, who is from Nikara, is filled with horror and rage after discovering the city that the Mugen have invaded, piled high with civilian corpses. It seems that the Mugen, who worship their emperor, are based on the Japanese. And when I was reading your novel, it brought to mind the decision by the American government after World War II or during World War II to drop the atom bomb on Japan and end the war before more American troops died. Do you think there is a time when extraordinary measures must be taken to protect the population, even if it means unleashing a weapon of destruction? I don't know. I, like the problem and the central problem at the end of the poppy war is that we don't know and we can't know, uh, because that's such a tricky ethical question. Because people justify the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by arguing that, well, many more people would have died if World War II had continued. Um, and that's a counterfactual which we will never conclusively know the answer to. Um, and it's also a tricky ethical question of, like, utilitarianism versus deontology. Like, if you take a totally deontological view, which is the idea that we are bound by moral rules that are unbreakable no matter the consequences, mm -hmm. um, then you'd have to argue that, no, like, that sort of genocide, that, like, using weapons of mass destruction, like the one that uses in the American views, is never permissible, especially if it's innocent. And, yeah, like, I, I subscribe to that view. That seems obviously correct. Um, but then if you're consequentialist, a utilitarian, and you care about, um, like, the end states or consequences of your actions, uh, rather than side constraints, you'd say, oh, well, sometimes you can do awful things um, if it means saving more lives in the future. Uh, it's it's a really, it's just a complicated version of the classic, like, would you kill one person to save ten question? And, like, the problem is that nobody knows the answer to that. That's, like, why the last of it exists. 
um, we can keep asking that forever. We'll be wondering if we were justified in bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki forever, and I don't think we'll ever really know. Uh, what we do know is that some actions are awful and morally condemnable. And yeah, I mean, so Rin's action was horrific. Um, was it the best action? I honestly have no idea. Um, and like, I don't think that the book was supposed to answer that question. I think it was just supposed to ask it and present a bunch of different viewpoints on it. Um, exactly. to present the debate in its total complexity. Um, but yeah, the, the poppy war is really about cycles of dehumanization. Um, and it's a commentary on how, how it's generational, right? Uh, mm-hmm. so as you said, hate breeds hate. So Lumines treat the Nakai like animals, but also Rin then starts using language that describes them as animals. Um, which is, which is not how you get to peace, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's purely retributive justice that ensures that warfare goes on for decades and generations. Um, so some people have been like, oh no, the poppy war justifies genocide. It celebrates Rin's action at the end. Um, and that's really frustrating because that is the opposite of the intended reading. The argument is rather like people, like, explain the question of what drives people to do awful things. And it's often because of awful things done upon them in the past. Yeah, I definitely uh, did not get that. It was a celebration at all. In fact, it was an <laughs> exploration of how deep in her internal abyss she was driven to even contemplate something like that and how she could not live with the consequences of her action and neither could Alton. And I think, uh, that anyone who's in a leadership position who is forced to make a decision like that, I think you were saying, do they follow a consequentialist route or one, uh, I didn't quite understand the terms, but one that's absolutely moral where the taking, large-scale taking of life is never justified. When they have to make that decision, that's a terrible thing to live with for the rest of your life. And it's in no way a celebration and it doesn't feel good. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to see what drives a person to that point. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a woman writing about a heroic female character. A series that focuses on a lone woman warrior is an exception. She's usually an accessory. Yet, I would argue that Rin's gender is mostly irre- irrelevant. She elects to have her uterus poisoned after she finds her menstrual cramps distracting. She has several male friends and mentors, only with Alton, her commander. Is there even an implication that her deep feelings of comradeship and loyalty might be tinged with romantic feelings? Do you agree that Rin's gender is not central to your series? No, I think it's very central. Um, by virtue of the fact that she's a woman, she faces challenges that nobody around her has to. So, mm-hmm. it's like, none of the guys that she was at school with had to even think about menstrual cramps, and she did. Um, and she also has, like, at the very beginning of the book, the reason why she's testing to get out of Rista province is because she's about to be married off to somebody who's three times her age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, child brides, like, only young women are... Um, like sold into child marriage like that. Um, I mean, yeah, the fact that her closest relationships happen to be guys is something I actually sort of regret in the Poppy War. I wish there had been more central female characters in the first book. There are in the second book, um, in the third book, definitely. But so something that I was trying to do was accurately portray a very patriarchal society 
um, same way that, um, like, you know, Song Dentist in China would have been patriarchal, and yet tell women's stories of resistance within that, which is why you don't see a lot of women at synagogue and you don't see a lot of women in the military. Um, that being said, almost everybody in a position of power in Israel's life happens to be a woman, so the rule of the nation is an empress, the mm-hmm. grandmaster of the academy is a woman, um, and the most central figure in Rin's life up until she gets to synagogue is also her aunt. Um, so those relationships affect her for the rest of her life, and some female characters introduced in book one, including Zenka, get much larger roles in books two and three. Um, so yeah, I think it is actually a failing of the first book that um, her closest circle only involves men, and that's something that's corrected in the next few well, as you said, you are trying to imbue it with a sense of historical resonance, too. So it's, I know personally as a writer, that it's difficult to portray an era, a woman going against a grain in a certain era in a certain culture, and then give her lots of female friends if she's yeah. in a patriarchal society. So Rand is not a hero that the typical YA reader might identify with, uh, the girl reader. She is tough and remorseless, yet I think she has a soft side. It's rarely glimpsed. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think Rin has a huge soft side. Um, so I, I was trying to write a trilogy about how somebody becomes basically a megalomaniac and like a psychopathic dictator. Um, but I think our normal explanation for how people become that awful is that they're just sociopaths. Right. But I'm not really interested in that as an explanation because that's really boring uh, to just ascribe everything to the fact that somebody has no capacity for empathy or doesn't care about anybody. It's really like just not very interesting explanation for why people do awful things. Um, and I think it's, it's a cop out. I think a much more interesting question is what drives people to do awful things if they are generally trying to be good people, if they care deeply about people around them, if they uh, like can empathize and perhaps empathize too much um, if they feel like the whole range of human emotions like very deeply. Um, basically, if like they operate the way that like neurotypical people do, um, how do they get to that point? Uh, so even though Lynn is tough and remorseless, she's not a sociopath. She doesn't even think she's a bad person. She's really trying hard to be a good person. She cares a lot about the people around her. She cares about Alton. She cares about Kitai. Uh, she even ends up caring about Nadja. Like, she really wants them to be okay, and she wants to protect them. Um, and if we're coming from that standpoint, like, that's something that all of us can easily identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're at that starting point, um, I think the much more interesting question is, if you're somebody like that, how do you what Rin does at the end of the novel. Yes, yes, people will have to read the novel to understand that. (laughs) Another quote from the novel was, pain was the price of success. Pain is mentioned often as a tool for transformation, and not possibly only good transformation. Here's another quote, the creation of empire requires conformity and uniform obedience. Rin is a product of the Nikara culture, which is based on a Chinese culture. Though at the end of your book, she is at odds with her own culture as well. Does the Nikara culture believe that difficult sacrifices should be made in pursuit of a greater goal? Um, I think parts of Nikara culture believe that. I, I really don't like statements that are like, does this culture believe this? Because... Um, it's very essentializing about cultures and not really how culture works, right? There are always different strains working um, in contradiction with each other. So 
There is a strong tradition, I think, in um, Chinese academic culture. Uh, so let's talk about the history of this test, right? Like the country mm-hmm. is based on a real test that people had to take to um, attain government posts. And um, the story that Rin's told when she's studying uh, for the test of the scholar who hurt himself to basically stay awake. Uh, so so Tudor Favorite tells her the story of a scholar who pinned his braid to the ceiling so that every time he dropped uh, he started nodding off and falling asleep. Uh, the braid would yank him awake. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so there is that tradition of making huge sacrifices to study because it's worth it in the end. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't say that necessarily means that the whole culture believes that um, sacrifice and pain is good. It's just um, like a facet of the academic tradition. Um, it's more so Rin's personal mantra because she's found over and over again, um, starting with studying for that test that like the more she sacrifices and the more that she allows herself to hurt then the more power she gets at the end um so really it's a commentary on her and not the culture at large mm-hmm. the mugans see the nikara as less than men and find new ways to slaughter civilians for their amusement the nikara women they keep in assault are referred to as public toilets but the nikara themselves take alton the shamanic fire warrior who comes from the island of Spear and train him like a dog. Rin is looked down on because of the color of her skin. How different are the Mukin and the Nikara, really? Yeah, good point. They're they're very different and at the same time not different at all. Like there's such a capacity for cruelty and dehumanization on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really sad. And I mean the biggest difference between them is technological um advancement and, you know, it's worth asking the question if uh, the Nikara had been the ones to have the equivalent of the Meiji Restoration, I guess, um, and had patterned themselves on the West earlier, then would they have conquered the island? Like, we don't know, right? Um, but yeah, it is definitely, there is no moral, uh, there is no virtuous side in this battle. Like, they're both at wrong. Okay. Uh, and Mugen is based on Japan, of course, uh, Nicaragua is based on China, and I believe that China confined the access of Westerners just to one area, and so Japan did become technologically superior. The hinterlands seems to refer to Mongolia, and correct me if I've made any misassumptions so far, but what is the island of Spear based on, where the shamans come from? Spear is actually more of an original creation than any of the other parallels are. Um, so, so we can loosely base spear on Taiwan, but I'm hesitant to say that just because, um, the historical parallels aren't there to the same extent that they exist for, um, Japan and China, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a history of, um, you know, ongoing conquest of spear, and it's a contested area that was also colonized by Japan, um, during World War II and then finally returned to China. Um, and there is the history of, brutal treatment of um, Taiwanese aboriginals um, by mainland Chinese, um, and they were darker-skinned than, you know, northern mainland um, Chinese people. Uh, so it's, there is that. Um, that being said, you know, the sort of treatment of the series that happens in the text never happened on Taiwan. So it's, it's a really, really loose connection, um, and definitely I don't think readers should read too much into it. Okay, but it's always good to know the geographical relationships between countries, even if the culture isn't patterned on it. 
So that's interesting to know where it would be located geographically. I'll probably look it up later. Uh, shamanism, which is practiced on the island of Spear, it's connected with a spearly warrior culture in the Poppy Wars. Yet in most cultures, shamans commune through entheogens with the gods for the purpose of healing others. Are the gods of the Poppy War all violent gods that thirst for blood and feed off hate? And if that's the case, I guess these are two questions in one. If that's the case, why are they gods and not demons? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say that the gods aren't violent and the gods don't feed off hate and none of them thirst for blood um, because it doesn't really make sense to ascribe moral qualities to the gods. Uh, the same, like we can't anthropomorphize them too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the gods aren't any of those things. The gods are just what they are. Um, and the text here explain that they're just the fundamental forces that make up the universe. So fire, fire wants to burn, fire wants to devour, and, and water wants to flood, and uh, the wind wants to blow. And so there are gods that heal because they're fundamental forces of healing as well. And there are gods that want to destroy because those are the forces at play, which is why in the pantheon of 64 gods, they all balance each other out. Um, so, you know, the gods of destruction are balanced out by the gods of creation and healing, uh, which is just like, you know, how our world works. Like, there is life and there is, there is death, there is suffering and there is happiness. Um, so, yeah, they they aren't human-type figures that want things the way that humans do. They don't have agendas. They don't, they don't interfere with the human world because of some long, godly game that they're playing. Um, in the ways that, like, gods, I think, are typically depicted, especially, like, Greek gods, right? Like, they're much more human than any of these right, gods are. Right, that's what I'm familiar um, with. Yeah, so the gods, the gods really don't have an end game. They just want to be what they are. And so the problem lies in when they're pulled out of the pantheon into the human world and let loose, because then, obviously, they aren't balanced by the other mm-hmm. 63 gods. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we interpret them as violent or hateful or demonic, but really they're just, they're just being a fundamental natural force. They're an animistic force. They are like the, the uh, spring from which everything derives some kind of essential truth that are up there. Yeah. And when it's brought into this world incorrectly, it overcomes the rest. I can see that. So yeah. uh, the Dragon Republic will be hitting stores soon. <laughs> And the pull quote says, brace yourself. So Rin seems like a warrior in need of redemption to me. Will we see her soften at all in the second book? I think Rin wants to soften, but she's in a world that won't let her. Um, there's that, there is that tension. And I think Rin doesn't just need redemption. She needs healing. Um, and it's an open question of whether or not she's going to get that. But... I won't reveal too much because okay. everyone can just wait until August to find out. Yes, <laughs> I think there's some people already eagerly awaiting it now. There's probably going to be a run on a bookstore. So tell us a little bit. So. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now when you're not studying. Well, I'm really, just trying to get this third book done before my deadline. Um, yeah, that's 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 going fine. Everything's fine. It's all right. Okay, well, good. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to us today on a New Books Network's Fantasy and Adventure channel. I've been talking to R.F. Kuang, the author of The Poppy War. To learn more, please visit her website, rfkuang.com, or follow her on Twitter under Kuang R.F. Her last name is spelled K-U-A-N-G. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the beginning of the Baroness Quest series. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. It's at Gabrielle Author, and my first name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E.